One thing I know for sure is that Americans love origin stories. I mean, we already know that Josh Hogue, your pastor here, is a big fan of the origin story of Spider-Man. And, and who doesn't know the origin story of Spider-Man? He even referenced it last week in his message. Of course, almost everybody knows the origin story of the fictional Superman. And of course, who wouldn't be able to be familiar with and recount the origin story of Luke Skywalker? As fun as those fantasy characters are, uh, we also have a big fascination with the origin stories of what we now consider to be really successful or famous people. I mean, think about it. Nike's Phil Knight started out by selling shoes out of the back of his car at track meets. Richard Branson uh, was a high school dropout who started Virgin Records uh, as a mail order company. J.K. Rowling, who wrote Harry Potter, did so at coffee shops uh, while as a struggling single mom trying to make ends meet. Apple, we all know, was started in a garage by the mutual friendship of Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. And Warren Buffett, he began as an entrepreneur by buying pinball machines and then making money off of placing them in local shops. We love stories like this. And this is why the book of Acts is so exciting and really appeals to us, at least at this basic level, because it is the origin story of the church. Yes, the entity that uh, we are all as Christians a part of. It, it, what, where we go on Sundays, uh, where, what we do, even as we watch this service, we are taking part in this community. And the book of Acts is here to remind us of who we are and where we came from. So think about that. Acts gives us the origin story of the church. And as such, it's not written primarily to tell us how to do things in the church. It's really written as a reminder of who we are and where we've come from and what we are all here to do. And wow, don't we need that reminder today. So, Let's get into this passage, and this is Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and we're going to uh, read about the very beginnings of this community that we now belong to, this community called the church. So join with me, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, look, aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native tongue, our own native language? 
Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But some sneered and said, they're drunk on new wine. So in this passage, we're going to see that the greatest need of our community today is for us to remember who God called us to be as a community. Will you join me as we pray? Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this story, the story of the beginnings of this new covenant community, this community of the kingdom called the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the people of God. Lord, help us to understand the significance of this moment in human history what it meant then, what it means now. And Lord, give us the grace and the courage and the strength to live out the implications of this passage. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what exactly is going on here in this passage? Of course, we've been in Acts chapter 1, and in Acts chapter 1, we see the crucified, buried, and resurrected Jesus, giving his last words to his disciples as he ascends into heaven in the clouds, being reminded by the angels that just as he has left, he's going to return one day. And what does Jesus tell the disciples? He tells them that now is the time for them to be the community that he has redeemed them to be. All that he has done in the cross and in the resurrection and all that he is doing as the ascended king is now going to be manifested in the life of this new community. They are going to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. But before any of that can happen, they need to receive the power and filling of the Holy Spirit. This is something that the book of Luke ends with as Jesus is, again, speaking to the mission of the church, what we like to call the Great Commission. It's something that begins the book of Acts, which is also written by Luke. They need the Holy Spirit. If we, if we go back to the beginning of Luke, we realize that it is Jesus himself whom the Holy Spirit fills at his baptism and empowers and strengthens and drives out first into the wilderness and then into his world. It is this same Holy Spirit now that must come upon Jesus' church in order for Jesus, in order for the church to do what Jesus has called them to do and to be who Jesus has called them to be. So chapter 2 is really the fulfillment of a promise that Jesus has made all along. In fact, you can go back to John chapter 14 through 17 and realize that even in the Last Supper, 
Even in Jesus' final discourse, as it's called, Jesus is reminding his followers that they are going to experience the Holy Spirit. He is going to come and indwell them and empower them and enable them to serve and to testify of the reality of who Jesus is. So, as this chapter opens up, the scene is set as this group of disciples is gathered, 120, there in Jerusalem, praying and waiting, as instructed, just as promised, the Holy Spirit shows up. And how does he arrive? He arrives with a powerful manifestation, with sound, the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Think tornado here. Uh, Fire, a manifestation of fire that splits and divides as uh, tongues of flames above the heads of the assembled group of believers. What's the result? Now all these people have this miraculous ability they did not have before. These Galileans, as we read in the passage, people are astounded. These are Galileans. They're just country folk. They had their, their own way of speaking that everybody could tell. Oh, you come from Galilee. Just like we could tell if people come from New York or Boston or the South. People could tell, hey, you, we know where you've come from. You're Galileans. And we know the kind of people that are Galileans. They're just country bumpkins. How is it that now all of these people, they're speaking our languages? It's important to remember that this is the day of Pentecost. This is during the Feast of Weeks. It's an Old Testament feast, one of three pilgrimage feasts, in which people from all over the world at that time, Jews from all over the world at that time, would come and travel to Jerusalem in order to be there for this festival. This festival occurred 50 days after uh, Passover. So Jews were here from all over the world, as we're going to read about. And here they're hearing dialects from way back home, from hundreds of miles away, coming from the mouths of Galileans. And what are they talking about? They know what they're talking about. They're talking about the mighty works of God. And it's astounding to them. What is going on? What does all of this mean? It might be fair to say that uh, for the last two millennia since this event, uh, Christians have continue to wonder, what does this mean? In fact, that's the question we want to answer today. This question is the question we're still asking, the question that's asked in verse 12. What is the meaning of this event? The coming of the Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, upon His church is a powerful moment marking the birth of a new era and the inauguration of a renewed people. So in this passage, we're going to learn that there are at least three implications that we can get from this Pentecost event, this coming of the Spirit at this special feast day. Three main implications. Let me give you the first one. Pentecost, the Spirit's coming at Pentecost, means this, that the renewal of all things is underway. The renewal of all things is underway. Now, how could we say this? How do we know this? Well, again, 
the passage we read, the portion we read, ends with this question, what does this mean? And some people, uh, they just dismiss it and, and mock it all together because it, it seems totally bizarre to them. They have no interest to even try to figure it out. But others are seriously wondering, what does it mean? And this sets up what comes after this passage in Acts chapter 2, which is the Apostle Peter preaching this inauguration sermon and explaining to the gathered crowd, this is what this means. And when he does it, he goes back and he quotes the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. And he explains, this is what God has said all along. God has said there's a new age coming and there's the present age will come to an end and a new age will come, an age marked by the Holy Spirit of God coming and filling his people. Peter goes on to explain that the reason why the Spirit has come is because the people, this same crowd 50 days later, 50 days earlier, has crucified the Messiah. The religious leaders who were hearing this sermon, they murdered the Prince of Life. And now that the new age has come, the new era has come, it's time for them to repent. And so Peter's going to explain what all of this means. And in his explaining it, we realize that this is really about the marking of a new era, the renewal of all things. Now, how, how can we be talking about that? Well, let's remember the biblical story. There's, there's this, a storyline in the Bible that begins in Genesis and stretches all the way uh, into the New Testament, all the way to the book of Revelation. And the pinnacle of that story, or the climax of the story, really is the person and work of Jesus Christ. But then the question becomes, well, why is he here? Why is Jesus the center of this story of God working in human history? We go back to the very beginning and realize that God created the world and he did so and created us with the intent that we would be rulers under him to steward and walk with God and to steward the resources he gave us and take this creation project uh, to the next level. But human beings fell into sin our first parents, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God's good commands and good design. And in doing so, they fell into sin. Evil came into the world. And it's this evil that now we look at and identify as all the source of all the brokenness that we experience in this world today. Why is it that human beings can't get along? Why is it that civilization, even with all of its advances and, and knowledge and technology and, and sophistication, why is it that there's still war and violence, even as it's uh, splashed across the headlines online and on print and on the TV? Uh, there's still war and division. There's still disease. I mean, we're coming out of this whole season of COVID. There's still depression. There's still racism. There's all of these difficulties. Where has all of this come from? What's the source of all of it? The Bible traces it all the way back to the events of Genesis chapter 3. That's where it started, when mankind broke with God and sought to live independent of God. And ever since that point, God has been on a mission to reconcile his people to himself actually to renew them. They were made in his image and they didn't lose the image of God when sin entered the world and sin entered into every one of us. But that image was tarnished. That image was marred and needs to be restored. 
And human beings don't have the ability to restore the image of God in ourselves. We can't even do that for one another, let alone ourselves. We can't seem to fix all the problems inherent in our culture and in society and in the world today. We, we have no way to do that in and of ourselves. We don't have the resources. We need divine intervention. All of us know there's something lacking in our lives. We need to be reconnected to our Creator, our God, the one who loves us, the one who can truly give our life purpose. And there's no way for us to even do that apart from God intervening. And so the whole Old Testament is really a story of how God pursues his people and how his people try and fail miserably to try to fix their situation apart from God or, or even try to live apart from God, and they just can't. And that's why God sends Jesus. He sends Jesus as the second Adam. The first Adam fell and brought about all this evil, but the second Adam came and did what the first Adam couldn't do. He obeyed. And by obeying and offering his life in place of ours, sacrificing himself for us, taking the punishment that each of us deserve, the judgment and condemnation that we deserve for our sin, Jesus dies on the cross to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. He exchanges his life and his perfection and his goodness for our death and disobedience and evil. And through that death and that burial and then that resurrection, Jesus extends the offer of new life to us. That's what the message of Christianity is really all about. It's not about a different set of rules or a, a different religion where we can obey a certain set of things and, and make ourselves better in the eyes of God. The true story of Christianity is that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. That's why Jesus came, to save us from our sin and from ourselves. And as you're listening to this message today, if that uh, story is something you're still trying to figure out or as I speak about it, you're like, oh, that's what that's about. Uh, I encourage you to text and, and reach out to the people at the church and reach out to uh, Pastor Josh and other staff members to find out more about what Christianity really is about, to really understand this gospel. They, couldn't, they would love to help you. I can't wait to help you in your journey to truly understand what God has done for you. But it is this work that God has done, not just to recapture people for himself, but even all of creation, which was marred by this entrance of evil. It is this work that now begins among human beings in this thing called the church, this community, this gathering of believers that Jesus calls the church. It's the Holy Spirit coming and living among his people that shows us this is the beginning of a new chapter in the history of creation and the history of the human race. Now, there's an interesting connection here when in verse 12 it talks about the, the confused state of mind that people had about what was going on. They looked around, they tried to figure it out, they were perplexed, uh, they were confused, some translations say. Uh, that word would have stuck out to the uh, reader of the Bible in Jesus' day because that word was a word used to dis talk about what happened at the Tower of Babel back in Genesis chapter 11. 
That story might be unfamiliar with some of you, but for some of you it's well familiar. What happened to the Tower of Babel back in Genesis chapter 11? Well, mankind sought to build a temple to reach into the heavens. In other words, mankind collaborated together in order and rebelled against God in order to erect a spirituality of their own devising. And God frustrated that effort and brought that effort to an end. And one of the ways that God did that was by allowing the cultures and the people to be divided because of the different languages. People didn't understand each other anymore and there was great confusion. And so they left this building project and scattered across the earth. Well, that confusion that happens in Genesis 11 as God is trying to put down this spiritual rebellion of his people that confusion is the same word used to describe the confusion of people now looking and seeing that the different languages and the different uh, racial and ethnic divisions are now somewhat erased by the fact that God's people are all speaking in languages that everybody can understand. In, in other words, it seems as if what happened at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 has now been reversed in other words, God is reversing the situation where God had to disperse people and allowed languages to be a barrier to unity. Now God is bringing people together through his spirit. What this means is that the church, as the resting place of the spirit, is the place where mankind can at last be reunited in blessing. This is where God's blessing rests and resides, the church. This is the singular place on planet Earth that human beings can find rest and reconciliation with God and with each other. That's what that's pointing to. Now, isn't that remarkable? The place where you're going to find real unity and, and reconciliation is, is not going to be found in the UN. No surprise there. It's not going to be found in temples uh, far flung across the earth. It's not about a building. It's about God dwelling with his people. And that's what the symbolism, the powerful symbols we're getting here of the spirit coming down is all about. The church is where God's blessing is. When man sought to build a tower in defiance of God, he was confounded. But when God seeks to build a temple, his people, well, he's blessed. So think about it this way. This episode, this moment in history, Acts chapter 2, is a sign and a signal. Earthlings have been put on notice. God's kingdom has arrived and God is among his people. And it's presently advancing and working its way through the world. It's coming, the kingdom of God will come in all its fullness one day and it will conquer all and right now it is present and active and we are a part of it. If you're a believer, if you've come to faith in Christ, if you repented of your sins and your efforts to be righteous on your own and you've put your faith and trust in what Jesus has done for you, then you have become part of this great community called the church. It's fascinating, and it is the sign and signal that renewal is underway.
Well, remember we talked about that this passage means really gives us three implications. One is that renewal is underway. But the second thing that Pentecost points to is that we are to be a showcase for transforming grace in this community we call the church. Now, we got to look, step back and think about the book of Acts and everything we're going to understand the book of Acts, that the book of Acts is marked by these statements that they are to be witnesses. That's how the book of Acts begins. Jesus says, you're to be my witnesses. And then we begin to see that the apostles themselves throughout the book continually refer to themselves as witnesses. They are giving testimony. They are supplying their account of what they have seen and heard and experienced and know to be true. And they're willing to lay down their lives. They're willing to die for it. They know they've seen and encountered the resurrected Jesus. They know they have his message and they know that message can deliver human beings from their brokenness. And they're willing to go and die for it. Well, as they go out and proclaim, the world looks in. And sometimes people are, are drawn to this and say, wait, what's going on here? How could this be? How can these people get along? They're from different uh, racial and religious groups and ethnicities and, and different language groups, and yet they're all coming together, working together in common cause for something that I've always longed for, and they're drawn into that. Other people throughout the book of Acts look at this and they don't understand. They just dismiss it and walk away from it. Other people still look at it and, and despise it and hate it and try to destroy it, and they persecute it. And so the world is watching. The world is looking in to see what is happening among Christians. And with the Spirit coming, that mighty wind, that those tongues of fire over the heads of the 120 disciples that were gathered there. It's a sign and symbol that the Spirit is among His people. And if the Spirit is among His people, then their lives are going to be different. Again, you got to go back and understand in the Bible that God has given His law to His people, but it was a law that they couldn't obey, not in any way, not completely, not fully. They failed at every turn. And in doing this, God eventually shows up and through one prophet, the prophet Ezekiel says, uh, it's, this is the renewal that's going to happen in you is not going to come by your doing. It's going to come by mine. I am going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to write my law on your hearts. I'm going to give you new hearts. And that's what it means to be a Christian. It means that we have a new heart, a spirit-regenerated heart, a new identity. And this is what the Holy Spirit is doing when he falls on these believers. And as the work of the community spreads the message of the gospel and people receive Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord, they are given new natures, new identity, and a new place, a new home in this community called the church. And we're to be a showcase for how God transforms and changes us. This is the place, your church, my church, this is the place where the world can see how it is that God lives on earth among human beings. 
the, the world has a place finally to see what authentic spirituality is all about. Remember, our culture, our American culture, has enthroned a spiritual but not religious kind of idea. Our, our, our culture is awash in false notions of spirituality. But here is where we can find true spirituality. Here in this community. Are we living that out? Are we allowing God to transform us and work in our lives in ways where the old habits and the old selves and the old identities are stripped away and replaced by who we all are in Christ. We're called to be saints. We're called to be sons and daughters. We're called to be servants of one another and of this world, even of our enemies. Well, this is where the world can see what it's like to be a community filled with the presence of God. That's a challenge for all of us to consider. There's a third uh, meaning and implication to the Holy Spirit coming and filling his church. And it means that we, as God's people, now can finish the mission. You see, God has given us a mission to complete. Jesus speaks of it in what we call the Great Commission at the end of Matthew and, and Mark and at the end of Luke the great commission to go into all the world to preach the gospel, to make disciples. Well, now there's a God-enabled way to obey that, to fulfill it, to complete that mission. That's exciting. That's encouraging. And the book of Acts is here to tell us, starting here in chapter 2, that apart from the Holy Spirit coming to his church at Pentecost, there isn't any evangelism that could be effective. Discipleship is not going to happen apart from the presence and the filling of the Holy Spirit. There's not going to be any churches planted. There's not going to be any works of missions into foreign peoples, into other people groups. None of it's going to happen. It would all be impossible apart from the Spirit. That's why Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that it's going to require the Spirit to come upon them, and then they'll be the witnesses. I love what uh, one commentator and famous preacher, John Stott, said. He said, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without his spirit is dead. You can't do anything without the Holy Spirit. That's what makes the work of the church effective. That's how we finish the mission. So we looked at these three implications, and it's important to, to think through them. Pentecost means that the renewal of all things is underway. It means that we are to be a showcase for transforming grace in community. It means that we now can finish the mission. So how should we respond to this? What should we do with the, the knowledge of understanding what this moment is all about in history in Acts chapter 2? Well, together, let us depend upon the Spirit's presence and filling so that we can live courageously as a community of the kingdom of God here in our time, in our city, in this place. Our city, our community needs to see a spirit-filled community of believers. Why, we could ask this, why do we, the church, 
sometimes act as if Pentecost never happened? Why do we act as if it failed and we need another Pentecost? Why do we act as if the Spirit never fell on us? Is not the Scripture tell us that when we become new believers, new creation, that we are baptized by the Spirit, the Spirit enters into our lives? Don't we remember that? We can live courageously with this knowledge now. We can be the community of the kingdom right here. Secondly, we need to depend upon the Spirit's presence and filling so that we can finish the mission. We can reach the unreached. And what do we mean by unreached? Well, well think about it. There are over 7 billion people in the world, and they're divided into 16,600 people groups. And... 6,700 people groups of that 16,000 are unreached. That means there is no gospel witness happening there among those people groups. So what that effectively means is there's 3 billion people out of the 7 billion people on the planet who have never heard the gospel. Yet yeah, they're waiting to hear the gospel. They have no idea who Jesus is and why he came. That represents over 40% of the world's population. And they're all over this planet. And Jesus told us, commanded us to go and make the gospel known among all of these people groups. Well, we can do that. We know we can do that. So maybe we need to examine our attitude toward the world and toward our mission here at home and around the world. I mean, are we just tempted to go with the flow of our culture and kind of forget what this is all about? Are we tempted to run for the hills and hide from all the changes in our culture that we don't like? Are we tempted to just despair and throw up our hands? No, now is the time for us to get involved in the work of the mission. It's time to give. It's time to go. Whatever he's done here, he's still able to do. And his power is not diminished. What are we doing with this? It's time for you to get equipped. It's time for you to use what you already know. Let's finish the mission. The third way we can respond is to renew our commitment to our king and to one another, to be the church. Realize this, that Pentecost means that every Sunday in every gathering of every body of Jesus, the most significant work on planet Earth is taking place. I believe that. Is that what you believe? This is where heaven on Earth happens. It doesn't mean that the church doesn't have its problems. It does. As long as there's people, there's going to be problems. But it doesn't mean that sin and brokenness and these problems, they have the final say. Absolutely not. They don't. The subjects of the king of the universe gather every week. What we do on Sundays, we're renewing our commitment to our king. We're hearing from him again, and we're finding the courage by the power of the spirit to go and herald this kingdom news in our communities and workplaces and schools where we live, work, and play. And we need to find this time together and, and be committed to this time together. So I want to encourage you uh, to respond in such a way that shows you trust the word here. You trust that this is what God is doing. Get connected. If you're not connected, get connected here at this church. Connect for Bible study. Connect for prayer. Connect for fellowship. Get connected to serve. Get connected to be equipped to be someone who advanced this message. Even if it's connecting for a meal with a few other people or connecting just for game guide, connect. This is the church. This is what happened 2,000 years ago in Acts chapter two is this great movement began. Are you fully invested in it as we should be? 
Let me close with a prayer that was prayed by a great preacher of old in um, the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon. Let's pray together. Oh, Spirit of God, you are already, you are already ready and working with us today, even as you did then in Acts chapter 2. We pray you would not delay, but you would be at work right away. Break down every barrier that hinders the incoming of your power and strength. Overturn, overturn all the idols. Overturn all the false ideas. Lord, blow through this church. Consume all the obstacles, O heavenly fire, and give us now hearts of flame and tongues of fire to proclaim your reconciling good news. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.